Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 44. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr., and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode, I will be discussing the launch of my newest book project, which is Origins of a Legend, The Making of Ed Strangler Lewis, which covers his career from his pro debut in 1910 up to... 1915, where he enters the New York International Wrestling Tournament in the fall. As you can tell, this is actually going to be a solo episode. I'm not joined by Dan or Trey this time. It'll just be me, and so it'd probably be a shorter episode, because I won't have as many distractions. And unfortunately, I also left off Caleb. Caleb won't be joining me this time either. Um, I will have both Dan and either Trey and or Caleb, or just Caleb, for our next episode, which we're going to talk about something very briefly in the update that we will cover much more extensively when we get back together. But I wanted to start out by talking about my next projects, and I said projects plural. My original intent when I finished up with this book project was to finish off, which I'm still going to do. I promise people it's coming out. I am going to finish the last St. Louis wrestling, or St. Louis wrestling, the last St. Louis history book, which is on the St. Louis chief of detectives, William Desmond, who was chief of detectives from uh, 1890 to 1907. He was responsible for the security at the 1904 World's Fair. And if there's one book on St. Louis history, I've always thought that I should right. It is the life story of Chief Desmond. So that I will be completing that, but I'm going to do something different in that I am going to do two book projects at the same time, something I've not done before. And depending on how difficult it is the first month or two, I might have to stop one, finish the St. Louis project. But my next project in combat sports is actually going to be to complete the career of Ed Strangler Lewis. So I have already written Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio, which covers Lewis's career in the 1920s, the famous double crosses, the match with Stecker to reunite the titles in 1928, and then the end of his career, although I didn't cover the last two shoot matches he had in that book. And then I've also written now the book on his early career, and there's just, a, it only covers about a month or two of his career, but he is in the very end of the uh, Mass Marvel to the Re Rescue, the book about the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament. What I have not covered that much, and what I need to look into, and I, part of when I go into the book project I just finished, it'll explain some of the things I'm looking for in the new book project. So it's always, Luthez said it, and he got it from Strangler Lewis, that Lewis and Stecker wrestled three matches, legitimate contests. I already know the first one. The first one was right after Stecker won the title in 1915, and that is covered in this new book project I've done. But they had three uh, matches that ended in draws, 
before Lewis was finally able to defeat Stecker. So I need to find that third match where Lewis is finally able to defeat Stecker. And the other thing I want to prove or disprove is that Lewis hooked Vladek Zabisco in 1917 or 1918 and injured his shoulder. So there has always been a blurb in The Fall Guys, the book by Marcus Griffin, which if you're new to the podcast, it is a great resource to start your research, but you don't want to take the information in that book and start just putting it out there like it's gospel or that's exactly how it happened because I found so many errors and inconsistencies in that book. Part of it is because Griffin, who was a journalist by trade, but he worked in the, uh, which was not unusual for journalists in the 20s and 30s, a lot of the promotional offices, professional wrestling promotional offices, would hire journalists to be their public relations people. That's how Sam Muchnick got his start when the St. Louis Star and Times closed up in St. Louis. He became the publicity man for Tom Pax's St. Louis wrestling promotion, and that's where he learned how to promote, was working with Tom Pax. Griffin held a similar similar position in the Buffalo office, which fired him in the mid-30s. But the five or six years that he was in Buffalo, he heard a lot of the stories from the wrestlers some of which he just printed as factual when if you've ever done any professional wrestling research, you you realize a lot of the fiction comes from the wrestlers themselves. So you have to be very careful about printing their stories as fact. And secondly, Griffin's purpose in writing that book was to get revenge on the promoters and the wrestling business, which he felt had betrayed him when they fired him from the Buffalo office. So you got to be very careful about using that as a source and not checking the information in there. But one of the things that is asserted in that book is that Lewis got mad at Zabisco during a match, which most of their matches did devolve. Um, they may have started out working, but a lot of times they got into fistfights. And Lewis, normally when he shot on somebody, he did not hook them and hurt them. He normally just stepped back and punched them. Not only did he punch Zabisco uh, numerous times in matches that turned into shoots, but he had also punched William Demetrol. Man Mountain Dean, when he went into the match in St. Louis in the uh, 20s or 30s with the intention of getting revenge on him for a comment Dean made, he mainly just punched him. He didn't really hook him. And so the story in Fall Guys is Lewis hooked uh, Zabisco, probably Vladik Zabisco, probably with a double arm wrist lock and separated his shoulder. I want to see if I can find that match as well, but basically it's going to cover Lewis's career after he leaves the New York International Wrestling Tournament in early 1916 until he wins his first world championship from Stecker in December of 1920. That's where the, uh, Double Crossing of the Gold Dust Trio picks up. And with the completion of that project, I will have covered the complete careers of the three top legitimate professional wrestlers in America Frank Gotch, Ed Strangler Lewis, and Stanislaus Abisco. So at that point in time, I, I will research some of the other uh, people or other professional wrestlers I've wanted to 
research like Joe Stecker and John Tiger, the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. But I want to finish that project first because to me, then I will have covered the careers of the three greatest legitimate professional wrestlers in pretty full detail. And the reason I, I thought the story of Lewis hooking Vladik Zabisco was not, I thought it was a false story. I thought it was just one of Griffin's hearsay stories that didn't have any basis in fact. But researching this previous book, which I'll talk about here in just a few minutes, I now think that it's possible that he may have actually hooked him. And I'll, I'll say why here in just a few minutes. So I'm going to work on both of those projects at the same time. So those projects will bo both likely be completed in late late summer, early fall, depending on how. Because uh, I also have a day job that I love and that I have no intention of uh, leaving until I mentally can't, cognitively can't do it anymore. That factors into my time frame, too. So I'm thinking, based on everything that's going on, late summer, early fall, but it could stretch into the middle to late fall, depending on how much research I have to do for both projects. I have a lot of it in my head already, but I will have to do some more research to, uh, for both projects. So the only other thing to cover on the update, and we will get into this much more in depth. And don't worry, you don't have to hide the kids. There are things alleged in the stories that we will not speak about on the uh, podcast, besides the fact that it's disgusting. Um, I don't want you to have to hide the kids when we talk about this. But this past week, so I'm recording this on Sunday, January 28th for the Monday, January 29th podcast, because this is the weekend I put the new book out. News broke this past week, Wednesday or Thursday, that Vince McMahon is being sued by a former employee for sexual harassment and, quite frankly, reading the story, sexual assault. And we'll get into more in depth because I want Dan and Trey or Caleb to weigh in with their thoughts as well. Vince McMahon, I've always respected as a wrestling promoter and a business person, even though he destroyed the professional wrestling that I liked when I was a kid. So I was a professional wrestling fan when I was a kid because my oldest sister, who's 15 years older than me, really liked it, and I would watch it. So she started taking me with the matches to her. She was 27, I was 12. And it was a big bonding experience for me and my sister, and that was not unusual because when you go to the St. Louis cards, you'd see whole families there. And we knew that it wasn't, you know, exactly what met the eye, but they did a good job of trying to keep people from seeing through it. And we definitely enjoyed <clears throat> watching it on television and going to Keele Auditorium. About twice a year, uh, once or twice a year, Sam Muchnick would have cards at the arena or the Checkerdome, depending on what era of St. Louis you grew up in. But the, <clears throat> most of the cards were at Keele, and it was like in every... Every three weeks on a Friday, uh, Sam would stage a card at the keel and my sister would take me. And if Vince's style of wrestling had been that style of wrestling when that happened, 
neither my sister nor I would have been fans. So I'm I'm thankful that I had the St. Louis promotion promoted by Sam, who treated it like a real sport, as it was something that me and my older sister were able to bond over. And when you look at 15 years, the difference in our age, we might not have bonded over other things, but we bonded over a common enjoyment of wrestling at the time. Vince destroyed all that in the 80s with his national expansion, but you had to respect what he was able to accomplish as a promoter and a businessman taking it national. But he has totally destroyed that legacy as far as I'm concerned. The allegations against him by this former employee are disturbing. Uh, It shows that Vince probably needs some psychiatric help. And my guess is that, uh, you know, a big, strong guy most of his life, but father time doesn't do the job for anybody. He's in his 70s. He's not what he once was physically. But for a 70-something-year-old, Vince was still in better shape than 99% of the 70-year-olds out there. But with a massive ego like that and all the things that he had uh, to do to accomplish what he did, it was probably very difficult for a person with that kind of ego to accept the fact that he was getting older. So he victimized this poor girl, and who knows how many other people have been victimized by him. So I have no respect for him whatsoever. And I've heard a couple people talking about it and saying, well, you know, she played along with it for a long time. She took a lot of money for a long time. In my opinion, when you have that large of a disparity between the power relationship, you have the owner of this multi-million, multi-billion dollar company, and you have this employee that he brought in, and this is prototypical. If 5% of what is alleged in that lawsuit is true, it is textbook sexual harassment, what is taught in the textbooks for sexual harassment. If only 5% of it is true. If more than 30% of it is true, it's it's very, very disturbing. He, he has just completely tarnished his legacy. And when you have a difference in power that great, an entry-level paralegal, um, yes, she got promotions, she got a lot of money, but it sounds like she was also forced to do lots of things she didn't want to do. I'm going to tell you, when there's a difference in power that big, I don't think that you can ever argue that it was consensual. There's too big of a power vacuum between the two of them. And there's no doubt she's going to feel coercion to do things that she doesn't want to do, no matter whether she had agreed to do them previously or not, or whether she was agreeing to do them then or not. Just the disparity in the power relationship between the two of them makes it makes consent almost impossible in my mind so in my mind people that are arguing well it was consensual at least at first and you know he paid her a lot of money and she went along with it there's a lot of stuff psychologically that's going on there actually with both of them but i'll let trey and uh, dan weigh in on it uh but Uh, I'm disgusted by what he has done. I have no respect for him as a man or as a business leader anymore. And it's good that he stepped down from the company and 
hopefully he can go get himself some professional help because he obviously needs it if any of that that's written in that suit is true. That's just an absolute shame. And I have taken a lot of shots at Tony Khan's management of his company. And everything I said, I stand behind. Tony has let a lot of the problems in his company fester because of his hands-off, not managing. But I have a lot more respect for Tony Khan as a person because I think in his heart, he truly does want to do right. Even though I think that his management style has hurt him, I think he at least wants to do right. He's got his own issues now with the allegations around Chris Jericho and that. Some of the things will, I know, come out later. But I still, until proven otherwise, I think that Tony does try to want to do the right thing. And if evidence ever comes out that Tony is covering up the stuff that his wrestlers are doing, maybe I'll change my opinion. But I don't take issue with Tony Khan for doing the kind of crap that Vince McMahon is doing. I take issue with Tony for his hands-off management style. So, and, you know, I, I hope the young lady is uh, successful in getting uh, compensation and she gets some, she, she probably will need some kind of mental health counseling to get past this situation. So uh, my heart and sympathy are with her. I have no sympathy for Vince. So with that, let me jump into the, the history project. I didn't even really want to talk about that this week, but I didn't think that I could not at least say something about it. And we will talk about it uh, more in depth in the next episode. So this project was actually one of the more fun projects I did. I learned, as I say, every time I, I start a research project on one of the wrestlers or a time in wrestling or a tournament, I always go in with some assumptions, some based on my own research, some on things that I've just read out. As I said, one of the first things that jumped out at me, I had always heard uh, when I was doing Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio, that when Zabisco double-crossed Big Wayne Munn in 1925 in Philadelphia, he had pinned Munn multiple times before the referee finally awarded him the fall because he was afraid that the fans were going to riot. The only part of that was true was the referee was afraid the fans were going to riot if he didn't count the fall. But Zabisco pinned Wayne Munn one time in that first fall, and the referee awarded it. And then they tried to convince Zabisco during the intermission not to go on with the double cross, but they were unsuccessful. And Munn came out, and Zabisco pinned him again. So this multiple pins and stuff, that's just because it's been repeated multiple times, and who knows where that came from initially. It could have been the wrestlers themselves talking about it. It could have been a book like Griffin's. You never know where the stories come from, but there's always stories. And the assumptions you go in in a research project a lot of times are blown up. So one of the stories in this book is that Ed Strangler Lewis took the name Ed Strangler Lewis. His real name was Robert Herman Julius Friedrich because he did not want his parents to know he was a professional wrestler. I actually know where that story came from now. It'll be in the next book. Uh, he did an interview early on in 1916, right after he left 
1915 International Tournament, claiming that he was born in Wisconsin, but his parents moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and he went to college at the university in Lexington, which which was the State University of Kentucky at the time, which he did not. He never went to college. He was the coach for the wrestling and boxing team for a few years at the college, but he never went to college himself. His parents still lived in Nakusa, and up until he left there to come to Kentucky to wrestle in Kentucky for a couple of years, he still lived in Nakusa. So that's where some of these stories can come from. So Robert Friedrich did not change his name to Ed Strangler Lewis because his, he didn't want his parents to know he was a professional wrestler. His parents already knew he was a professional wrestler as he had his professional wrestling debut in Nakusa when he was 19. And that Nakusa was all of 700-something people. And for the first two years of his career, when he would go out and wrestle in other places, the uh, county newspaper covered all his exploits. So his parents were well aware that he was a professional wrestler. One of the other things I learned on this project that I did not know beforehand was Lewis did actually hook somebody in a wrestling match. I always knew he, when he got mad and started shooting, he, he normally just punched him because that's what he did to Vladik Zabisco in Detroit when they first got into it. He just took a step back and knocked him down with the right hand. And when Zabisco tried to get back up, he knocked him back down with the right hand. And they had three or four matches over the course of 1914 and 1915. And only one of those matches went off as planned, as a worked exhibition. Most of their matches ended in fistfights. But they did have one match, and I can't remember if it was Virginia, West Virginia. I thought it was Lexington. But towards uh, the end of 1914 and through 1915, Lewis was no longer just wrestling primarily in Kentucky. He wrestled all over the South and up in Chicago and Illinois, and even took a few matches up in the Northeast. So wherever this match was, it was late 1914, and he and Vladik Zabisco got into it again during one of their matches. And Lewis actually put a front face lock in MMA. It would be called a guillotine choke. Um, it was the original strangle hold used by Evan Strangler Lewis, who was Ed Strangler Lewis's namesake. And Lewis used the working version of it in his matches in 1913 and some in 1914. But he actually hooked Zabisco with that front face lock and would not let go. The referee ends up finally prying him off. And I can't remember if that one went to a DQ or a draw. A lot of their brawls went to draws because they just both got disqualified. But this one, he might have DQ'd Lewis. I can't remember. It was, it was a it was a strange decision. That's why I'm in my mind. I'm thinking it was a draw. But Lewis hooked him with that front face lock and wouldn't let go until Zabisco almost passed out, and then he let him go where he fell and hit his head on the mat, and Zabisco laid down there for a good minute or two. And while that would sound like a great working segment, uh, Lewis actually hooked him. And it was one of those things that it, they, he had punched him once, and Zabisco had punched him back, and they were getting ready to get into a free-for-all. 
And Zabisco kind of came into him, and when he came into him, he put that front face lock on him and would not let go. So now that Lewis had hooked Zabisco once, I can't completely discount the Griffin story. I was completely discounting it before because I had never known Lewis to shoot on somebody with a hook. He usually shot on somebody by punching them. This is the first time I've seen him use a hook. So since he's done it once, he could do it twice. So now it's even more important to me that I find that match and either am able to dispel that rumor or to say, yep, that, that is true. A couple of the other things that surprised me, uh, Lewis worked a lot more matches than I realized going into the project. Um, even as early as 1913, Lewis is working a lot more matches than he's wrestling contests. And the other thing that I was able to, there was a story that Billy Sandow was responsible for getting Strangler Lewis in professional wrestling. And that came from their series of training courses that they put out in the mid-1920s when they were the hottest group in professional wrestling. And they were trying to merchandise things to make uh, money outside of just their wrestling exploits. And they did a whole series. I'm going to say it was four or five books on their physical training and their wrestling methods. And in that contained a story of how they met and how Lewis became a top professional, and most of it's all fiction. The one true thing is when Lewis did start uh, under the management of Billy Sandow, his career did take off like a rocket. That part is true. But all of the things about how they met and who trained who and how uh, somebody convinced somebody to do something, that is all as much a tall tale as the I took the name Ed Strangler Lewis so my mom and dad wouldn't know I was wrestling professionally. Some of the wrestlers who feature prominently in this book, uh, who were frequent opponents of Lewis, are William Demetrio, Dr. Benjamin Roller, Vladek Zabisco. And I was absolutely shocked because this is one thing I had no clue about. And I wrote about his career, and I did not find this match when I was doing that research project. So I don't know if the archive has just been recently updated. But I found in Kentucky at the in the spring of 1914, before he returned to Poland, Stanislaw Sabisko came to Lexington, Kentucky, and had a contest, not a worked exhibition, a contest with the young Ed Strangler Lewis. I didn't think they even met each other until 1921 when he returned after World War I. But Zabisco, one of the very last matches he had before he returned to Poland, it was after the Aberg match, he wrestled a young Ed Strangler Lewis. And at that time, Lewis was not on Stanislaw Zabisco's level. So it's an it's an interesting match. But prior to doing this research project, I had no idea that the two of them had ever met prior to 1921, much less wrestled each other. And as would be true in the 1920s, Lewis had a great deal of respect for Stanislaw Zabisco, but couldn't stand Vladik Zabisco. And then uh, there was one other thing I wanted to cover real quickly. 
Unfortunately, that, that's the one bad thing about doing the solo episode. Usually Trey and Dan take me down so many avenues that I can actually come back to my thought because while they're, it'll come back into my head while we're talking about something uh, completely different. And, oh, I'm sorry. Now it finally came back to me. The, uh, the last thing is he was fairly inactive in the summer of 1915 outside of uh, Farmer Burns Group in the Midwest, who was trying to establish Joe Stecker as Gotcha's uh, replacement. A lot of the professional wrestlers in the United States were in New York competing in that 1915 International Wrestling Tournament. So in the spring, it's harder to come by matches. In the summer, a lot of the places took off because it was too hot. So in the South, they almost never had matches in the summertime because it was too hot. So by fall, when the wrestling season should be kicking back in, a lot of the wrestlers are back up in New York for the fall version of the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament. I don't think I realized before, I should have put it together, because I I just thought, because Burns was so big in the Midwest, that they still had a number of wrestlers in the Midwest. So... Lewis or other people wrestling in the South or the Midwest could still find opponents, but they had actually tied, because there were 60 wrestlers in the spring version. I don't think it was quite 60 in the fall, but it was probably 40. And that's a lot of professional wrestlers for that time. I, I don't think you had 100 professional wrestlers in the business in that era. So it was hard to come by opponents. And I think that's one of the motivating factors for why Lewis went and joined the International Wrestling Tournament when that opportunity became available because he just couldn't find enough matches in the Midwest and the South with the few wrestlers from uh, Farmer Burns' troop. And uh, he was he did get one match with Joe Stecker. So I think that was the motivating factor for why he joined the International Wrestling Tournament because they did start doing catch matches and he won all the catches catch can wrestling bouts however the championship of that tournament was in greco-roman wrestling which was not lewis's strong suit and he like everybody else lost to alex aberg in the finals in greco-roman wrestling because outside of stanislaus abisco there was nobody in the united states at that time that was going to be able to beat aberg at greco-roman wrestling and zabisco had a tough time with aberg in 1914 so that is what I learned with the new book project. It is out on Amazon as we speak. Uh, you should be able to find it. And it is in paperback, hardback, hardcover, and ebook. And for the first time, we will have an audio book version of this. The Amazon has recently created a beta program for using uh, virtual voice as the narrator. And I was very skeptical, but when I finally checked it out, it's actually quite good. And so the this book and a couple other of the more popular combat sports titles, I will be uh, putting out there on audiobook as well. That should be coming out in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, my busiest time of the year is always uh, from about May to the end of August. So... Anything that doesn't get released before May probably isn't going to get released until the fall. So 
If you're looking to it for a particular book on Audible, uh, please be patient with me. It takes me a little while to, to get that done. But I do intend to have most of the books on Amazon, uh, which this one should be the 22nd, available on audiobook within the next year or so. And with that, I have struggled with whether I should review uh, the Royal Rumble or not. I just had it on in the background the other day. I didn't really watch it that closely. Um, the results were what I thought that they should be. And the resemblance between this and the professional wrestling I grew up on is only by accident, I think. I mean, you've got a few people that would have been big stars at any time in history in wrestling, but they would have definitely had to modify their style and the things that they were doing. Outside of maybe a Roman Reigns and a Seth Rollins, they pretty much do what they should be doing. But so for the review this week, I may just uh, wait until me and Dan and Trey or Caleb are back together. But if you're looking uh, for something interesting and you have the uh, Peacock uh, network or channel or streaming service, however you want to call it, if you go into the territory section of the WWE network, there is a, uh, well, there's two, but there are, they call them episodes on there. If you go under world class, You'll see Star Wars, and it's just two episodes from World Class Championship Wrestling used to call their annual big shows Star Wars. So you'd have Christmas Star Wars. You'd have, um, it wasn't New Year's, it was Christmas Star Wars and Summer Star Wars. And they did one other one, I can't remember. But this one was from actually February, so maybe it was Valentine's Day Star Wars, who knows. It was from February of... 1981, and the matches on there are Fritz Von Erich versus the Great Kabuki, and Kerry Von Erich versus Rick, or Rick, not Rick, he he took on Harley Race, who was the NWA world champion at the time, and Kerry was 21. That's not a bad match to see what a typical NWA wrestling match was like in the 1980s when I first got introduced to professional wrestling. And I guess I should take one step back. If you're a new listener, so I started researching 1870 to 1920 because I believed that that was the era of professional wrestling where they were doing legitimate contests. As I quickly found out after researching for a little bit, most of the matches prior to 1900 were contests, but there was plenty of working going on. 1900 to about 1915 was sort of a transition time, and you had a, a mix, but probably leaning closer more to working than to shooting. And then from 1915 on, unless it's double crosses or it is uh, agreed upon contest to settle promotional wars, those matches are works. So they started working earlier than I thought. And I've gone back to 1870, and there were matches being worked in 1870. So, hence the name of this podcast, it was almost real. There has never been a time in professional wrestling where it was all legitimate contest. That time doesn't exist. But 
for 30 years, it was mostly contests. For 15 years, it was sort of a transition, probably leaning a bit more to working. And then after 1915, it's only double crosses and agreed upon contests. This is obviously 1981, so these matches are all worked. But a lot of the fans were still true believers, and the heel wrestlers could generate what they called heat, and fans would actually try to attack you. So what I wanted to bring everybody's attention to, if you want to watch this, there's a good NWA-style wrestling match on it with Kerry versus Harley Race. But the match before that with uh, Fritz von Erich versus Kabuki, it's that, that would have been more of a novelty match in the NWA because Fritz is definitely much older. He's in his 50s at this time. And, I mean, unfortunately, he looks very much in his 50s. And Kabuki is younger, but he was more of a martial arts kind of gimmick wrestler than a pure wrestler in that era. But towards the end of the match, Kabuki is in the corner and Fritz von Erich has got the iron claw on him. And Gary Hart, who is Kabuki's manager, is hitting Fritz on the outside. And all of a sudden, out of the corner, you see these fists coming. And you think it's one of the... But it's actually a fan has jumped in there and started throwing punches at Gary Hart. And the security and the police have to run over there and break it up. But you will see the kind of heat that was generated back in that day. The heels had to be very careful because fans had stab people, throwing stuff on, you know, the wrestlers. Because they, they were trying to keep people from knowing that it was a work. Although most people, even me at 12 years old, I knew not everything I was watching was on the up and up. You just couldn't tell what was going on. And that was the beauty of it. It's like not knowing what a magician's doing. You know this isn't really happening, but you can't really tell how they're doing it. And that, to me, was the art of professional wrestling. Now, it's so obvious everybody's cooperating, but they're also hurting each other on legitimately. So, well, as I promised, this is going to be a shorter episode because I haven't got the other two to take me down every alleyway and distraction. Um, we will be back on Monday, February 5th. Yes, Monday, February 5th. And that'll be a, a group episode. It won't be a solo episode. But I told him I was going to put a solo episode out this time just to talk about the project and the projects that are coming up. So until next time, everybody, take care. Bye-bye.